Hello, everyone, and welcome to Tops Talk, episode 36, and we thank you for listening in from whenever and wherever you are. I'm your host, Alex Birch. My guest this week has a long history with baseball cards, and he also happens to be a numerously awarded broadcast journalist with one of the most iconic voices and presences in broadcast history. Bob Costas has won over two dozen Emmys and has been named Sportscaster of the Year a record eight times by the National Sports Writers and Sportscasters of America. I, like many of you, have listened to his dulcet tones and carefully calculated words for my entire life. Yet talking with him about baseball cards and baseball in general was one of the easiest things I've done as a professional. Why? Because the man just adores the game, just like the rest of us. Which, as he so perfectly tells it, is why baseball can be one of the greatest equalizers of American culture. I began our conversation, as I do with all my other guests, which is finding out how they fell in love with baseball cards. Bob Costas, thank you so much for joining me. Happy to do it, Alex. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, and I want to get right into it because uh, I know you're a very busy man. You love baseball, but not only that, I know you really appreciate baseball cards. Let's go into that. Why did you fall in love with baseball cards? Well, it was a different time, late 1950s, early 1960s, when kids, by and large, collected baseball cards for whatever their romantic value was or their baseball fan value was. There was never any monetary figure attached to it. That never crossed your mind. You just knew that a Willie Mays or a Mickey Mantle or a Whitey Ford or a Bob Gibson was more valuable than player X, Y, or Z. And it always seemed like there were fewer of them. I'm sure the Tops wasn't conspiring this way, but it always seemed as if there were five Hector Lopez's or Wayne Causey's for every one Roberto Clemente. Um, I don't know if that was true or not, but when I was six, seven years old, which was when I first started to collect baseball cards, a pack of Topps bubblegum cards cost a nickel. And there were five cards plus a little rectangular, chalky piece <laughs> of pink bubblegum, which was so hard that if you dropped it on the sidewalk, it would shatter like a pane of glass. <laughs> but it was part of the treat when you opened it up. But the real treat was the excitement of who you're going to get in the pack. And you'd be with your buddies, and what you'd often hear was, got him, got him, need him, got him, got him, need him, need him, got him, as you went through the pack. Um, and think about this. For a dollar in 1959, you could get 20 packs of baseball cards and 20 pieces of bubble gum, meaning that you got 100 baseball cards some of them might have been matches, but you got 100 baseball cards for a dollar. I think my allowance, though, was just 50 cents a week, so that was that was two weeks' worth of allowance money. And then what you did was you flipped them, and you try to match it or dematch it, depending upon uh, what your opponent called. So if he flipped his card and it was a heads, then you had to flip it from above hip level and try and match it and you got both cards, or he got both cards. And there were variations of games that you play with the, with the cards, uh, sort of a childhood version of gambling. And then if you had multiples of Norm Seaburn or Bob Perky or whomever it might be, then you could put them on the spoke of your bike, the spokes of your bike, to make a very cool sound, a clipping kind of sound, as you went pedaling around the neighborhood. So that was our innocent relationship to baseball cards. No one ever thought, you know, if I save this Maury Wills 
in mint condition, someday it might be worth X amount of money. I never heard a kid say that. They only wanted the card on the basis of their affection for that team or, or for that player or if they were trying to complete the entire set. It's funny that you say that because, I mean, so many people have such different relationships with baseball cards, but you're right in that I don't think I've heard one person, and, and I've talked to a lot of people about how they got into baseball card collecting and, and what they did when they were younger, and no one, no one actually told me that. You know what? I said to myself, let's save it, because it, was more, it wasn't really about that to them. A lot of it was about not getting closer to the game using these cards yeah. and because it, it's not like you could go on to baseball reference or go on the internet that wasn't going to exist no. for decades to find out information about your players. I mean, this was how you saw the faces of your favorite players. Right. And in fact, the first edition of the baseball encyclopedia in book form, which I got as a Christmas present when I was 15 or 16 years old, came out in like 1968 or 69, somewhere in that vicinity. That's the first time that you could actually hold in your hands, and it was it was pretty heavy, uh, going from Hank Aaron. Hank Aaron was, and still is, the very first player. It's kind of appropriate, double A alphabetically, the first player in the baseball encyclopedia. Uh, Hank Aaron through, I guess, Gus Zerniel or Don Zimmer or whoever <laughs> yeah. is the last B. Uh, that was that was a treasure when when you received that. But you're right. The way you thought of baseball cards was what kind of pose is Mickey Mantle in this year? Do I like this better than last year's card or, or the year before? Um, and what sort of information would there be on the back? The statistics for every season of the major league career was there. And then usually there was some kind of cartoon. Sometimes you had to rub it with a nickel um, to, to get the cartoon to reveal itself or the answer to the trivia question to reveal itself. Um, there might be some personal tidbit about the player. It'd be like Grote, who was the MVP when he played with the Pirates in 1960 and was on the Cardinals' 64 World Series team as their shortstop. Dick Grote was a basketball star at Duke. And so a typical thing when a guy played two sports, above his statistical record, there'd be a cartoon. And it would say, Dick was an All-American basketball player at Duke. And the cartoon would have him dribbling a basketball with one hand and swinging a bat with the other hand. <laughs> or <laughs> some other corny thing. Orlando Cepeda. Orlando belted 46 home runs last year. And then he, they'd have him swinging a strap or a belt and a thought bubble over his head saying, I love to belt them. <laughs> and you'd be like nine years old and you thought, hey, this is great. And it's so funny, you have such a vivid memory for these very minute details of the cards, and I think that really says a lot about how these uh, how these things really affected your kind of fandom. I mean, would you say that baseball cards really uh, really affected the way that, that you embraced the game and then ended up falling in love with the game? Yes. Uh, the games themselves, but also the broadcasts, which were primarily radio broadcasts. I grew up in New York, so I listened to Red Barber and Mel Allen. And then when I was 10 and the Mets came into existence, Lindsey Nelson and Bob Murphy and Ralph Kiner. Uh, but we also briefly, for a year and a half in the early 60s, lived in Southern California. And so I heard Vin Scully in the transistor radio era uh, when everybody listened to Vin, either when they were stuck on the freeway um, and that terrible Los Angeles traffic, 
<laughs> or with their transistor radios. And so I got a taste of that kind of melodic uh, baseball announcing, that, that lyrical baseball announcing that those Hall of Famers exemplified. So radio was part of it. Baseball cards were part of it. And then in the mid-60s, I had, uh, he's still my cousin, but we're, <laughs> we're a bit older, <laughs> further on in years. We were kids then, an older cousin, and he introduced me to Stratomatic. Mm. And I learned a lot about the various strengths and weaknesses of the players through Stratomatic because they would rate their um, running abilities and their defensive abilities. And they also had classic old-timer teams. So you could have Walter Johnson's 1924 Senators against Pepper Martin and the Gas House Gang Cardinals, and you learn some of baseball history that way. So all those things, you know, coupled with your own imagination, a lot of the relationship that a kid had with the game then was through his imagination. It was in his mind's eye. Uh, thousands and thousands of kids have told this story. It's certainly not unique to me. Of the first time they went to a ballpark, usually with their dad in that era, and if they had seen any baseball on television, it was almost certainly in black and white. Mm -hmm. And the first time they walked into Wrigley Field or Yankee Stadium or Ebbets Field or Sportsman's Park, it was like when Dorothy lands in Oz and it goes from black and white to Technicolor. You walk up that tunnel and you see how pristine and pearly white the baselines are and the outline of the batter's box and how emerald green the grass is. Now, the warning track isn't really brown. It's like a burnt orange. And all the other colors and sights and sounds, when you're six, seven years old, it's overwhelming. It's, it's almost like you're in a different world. And it's so funny that you say that because I've listened to that story probably 15 times from my father. <laughs> when, he, when he went to Yankee Stadium for the first time, he went with his dad, my grandfather, and he looked up at him when they went through the tunnel. He looked up at him, and he only said, three words like essentially for the first hour that they were there which is it's in color like it, it's right. it's it's amazing and and he he'll he said i'll never forget that and part of me is envious of that because i'll never really experience anything like that in my life and and nor will my children or my children's children ever really experience anything like that i mean that that really is something very special well alex i'm glad that you have an appreciation of that because there are a lot of younger people out there i don't think they're a majority but you know there's so much snarkiness and some of the stuff that's out there and those voices kind of crowd out the more reasonable and good-natured ones sometimes and it's almost as if if it's not in their frame of reference then it's just a bunch of nostalgic nonsense i'm not saying the game was better then i'm not saying that i don't follow baseball through baseballreference.com or that I don't have the baseball package so I can see every game or that I don't check if I'm out to dinner and I want to check scores that I don't do it on the on the phone of course I do I of course I take advantage of all those things but to understand that there were different eras and that those eras had their own appeal and their own distinct character and that there was a different element of romance that the distance of imagination more so than the immediacy does now. That's just an understanding of, of something that was true and real and meaningful at that time. That doesn't diminish anything that happens now, but it's part of my frame of reference because of, of the time in which I've lived. Yeah, and it really, 
helped grow your love of the game. And and you mentioned yeah. early and you mentioned earlier uh, about uh, someone who connects generations, and that's Vin Scully. And of course, mm-hmm. uh, he has now retired officially after years of wondering if we were going <laughs> if it was going to happen. Uh, he has officially retired. I'm officially sadder as a person. I, I already miss hearing him, and uh, I can only imagine how much he has affected your life indirectly and directly. Well, I think, and I've said this both on the air and to writers who've asked me about Ben over the last few months, I really believe this is true. I don't think there's any single person in the history of baseball that is connected to more of the game's history than Vin Scully. When you think about it, when he broke in in 1950, Connie Mack was in his last year as the manager of the Philadelphia A's. You can keep the job for exactly half a century when you own the team. You're unlikely to be fired. They, <laughs> yeah. they had great and lousy team because they kept selling players off during hard times financially, but they had some World Series winning teams and some woeful teams. And he was their manager from 1900 to 1950. His last year, he was 90 years old. That was Vin Scully's first year under Red Barber with the Brooklyn Dodgers. Connie Mack was born in 1860. He was born the year Abraham Lincoln was elected president. That's insane. He was alive during the Civil War. In 1950, there had to have been players still active whose careers had begun in the 1930s. And some rookie who broke in in 2016 will still be playing in the 2030s. So that will mean that one man, Vin Scully, will have described the exploits of players whose careers are separated by a full century. One guy connected in that fashion. It really, it's an amazing thing. It's, a, it's absolutely remarkable. And the whole six degrees of Kevin Bacon nonsense, I mean, we're talking about two degrees of Vin Scully or one yeah. degree, or one degree it's truly I think, amazing i think two moves and you connect them to abner doubleday yeah. in fact abner doubleday really did have anything to do with inventing baseball let's say he did it couldn't take more than three and i think you could probably do it two to connect then to abner doubleday <laughs> yeah exactly or uh, or spalding or, or you, you never know right. who. Never alexander know who. cartwright take your pick Rabid hockey fans out there, did you know Tops just unveiled a card collecting app for your Apple and Android devices? Take a moment to look up Tops NHL Skate, the brand new app that seamlessly combines the art of collecting with the competition of fantasy sports, as you can not only collect the cards, but play them as well in daily and weekly fantasy style contests. Trade with other fans all over the world who have the app so you can shape your collection however you'd like. Cards are updated in real time, so it's a great companion for those of us whose favorite hours of the week are spent sitting in front of the TV catching all of the NHL action you can. I know, I am one of those people. Head to the Apple or Google Play store today to get your hands on Topps NHL Skate. Having a mobile card collection is only a tap away. Another name that, I don't want to use the word frustrated, but I I guess I'll say a little disappointed that he's not getting as, obviously he won't get as much press, but is uh, Dick Enberg, who also retired. Mm-hmm. And and Dick Enberg is kind of quietly going off into the sunset. Yes. And, and so speak a little bit, if you can, about uh, Dick Enberg and, and his contribution to broadcasting. Well, I mentioned both Dick and Joe Garagiola during the pregame show on Monday prior to the Dodgers-Nats game three. 
on the MLB Network because my thoughts are very much the same as yours. Uh, Dick is one of the greatest all-round sportscasters in broadcasting history. And the way I've put it a few times is, if there was a decathlon of sportscasting in the 1970s, 80s, early 90s, and we were talking about national broadcasters, Dick Enberg would have won that decathlon. He did so many different things so well. Baseball, football, basketball, both college and the NBA, golf, tennis, the Olympics, who knows what other stuff on sports world, various things. And he worked so well with partners. Vin is distinctive because of how beautifully he worked alone, and that suited his style, and that was the way it should have been. But Dick was so brilliant in interacting with Al McGuire and Billy Packer, the best college basketball announcing team when college basketball was becoming a national rather than regional sport. He was so good working with Merlin Olson on football. He was so good with Bud Collins and John McEnroe on tennis. And as a baseball announcer, I think because he had so much fame through the NFL and through college basketball and other things nationally, a lot of people are unaware of what a terrific baseball announcer he was for a long stretch of time with the Angels, the same market as Vin Scully, and it's impossible to get completely out of Vin's shadow because he's the gold standard. But Dick was just wonderful on Angels broadcast and an excellent booth with Don Drysdale for the most part. They had a, a wonderful relationship on air. And then he came back to baseball, which was always his first love, to finish up with the Padres. So even if, even if Dick had waited another year or retired a year before then, I don't think there would have been as much celebration of him as a baseball announcer, not because he wasn't great, but because he didn't have anything like the continuous decades-long association with a single team. And, of course, the Dodgers aren't just any team. They're one of the most historically significant teams in all of American sports. So it isn't just that Vince Gully is unique in terms of his talent and style, but the circumstances that surround his career can also never be duplicated. So it's understandable that, that Vin would stand apart, but in his own way, Dick Enberg doesn't have to take a backseat to anyone. And Joe Garagiola passed away at the age of 90. He'd been retired from broadcasting for a while, but he passed away just prior to the start of this baseball season. And I think that younger fans especially don't have an appreciation of what a giant of broadcasting Joe Garagiola was. He did the World Series either as the color man or play-by-play man with Tony Kubek, with Kurt Gowdy, and with Vin Scully in the 1980s. Joe, like all of those partners, a member of the broadcasting wing of the Baseball Hall of Fame. But in addition to that, he was the host of the Today Show for a long time. He didn't just guest on The Tonight Show. He guest-hosted for Johnny Carson. And on one of those occasions, the guests were the Beatles. He did oh, game man. shows. Yeah, he did game shows. He wrote books. He was a humorist as well as an analyst. I think there was a period of time where Joe Garagiola was more famous, better known to the average American, man or woman, than anybody who, by definition, was a sportscaster. But, of course, that was many years ago, and memories fade, or younger people have no recollection of it. But Garagiola and Enberg, um, as you say, in their own way, they were giants, too. 
this really is underneath this overarching umbrella of I think something that's very special, which is just is baseball broadcasting and the relationship that broadcasters have with their fans because yeah. it's un, it really is unlike any other sport because it's essentially every day for really yeah. your favorite time of the year. It's day in, day out. It's more local than national. Baseball has always been the game with the greatest generational connections. And so it was true even decades ago that people had a real fondness uh, for their local announcer. Jack Buck is revered to this day in St. Louis. Harry Carey revered in both St. Louis and in Chicago. Ernie Harwell in Detroit. Um, if, If it's your guy... You have a special connection to that guy. Um, So that's always been true, but I think it's even more true now because for the last couple of generations, even future Hall of Fame players, in many cases, play for several teams. It used to be Al Kaline or Carl Yastrzemski or Brooks Robinson or Mickey Mantle or for the most part, even though Willie Mays played a couple of years with the Mets, and he was a giant. Yeah, they moved from one coast to the other. Ernie Banks was a Cub. But now uh, you get players who are all-stars in the prime of their careers changing teams, Hall of Famers changing teams. What's the one constant? The longtime baseball voice. So maybe that attachment is even greater now uh, for some people than it used to be. It's true. I mean, and and, different ownerships will have uh, will kind of come and go. And and like you said, the, the baseball players, I mean, they'll leave for greener pastures and I mean, and now, you know, sometimes we have no idea what cap people are going to wear in the Hall of Fame, which at one point I'm sure seemed ludicrous yep. that, that that would ever happen. Right. Um, but, yeah, it is an amazing it's an amazing relationship that I think as long as baseball exists and is as prominent as it is today, that that relationship will be very strong between the the broadcasters and the fans. It really is like this familial tie, almost. And and no, Vin, no question yeah, about it. Vin was no every 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 LA fan's grandfather, essentially, or father. Yes, and he connected grandfathers and grandmothers to grandsons and granddaughters because very often, you know, when you're a kid, what are you going to do? Talk about world affairs with with your parents, but you can talk about baseball. You can talk about sports. David Halberstam, the Pulitzer Prize-winning author who wrote The Best and the Brightest and many other uh, books about politics and history, was also a huge sports fan and wrote some wonderful sports books. In fact, he almost alternated sports book and then a book about about uh, politics or sociology. Uh, he wrote Breaks of the Game about a season with the Portland Trailblazers and wrote a number of books about baseball, one of which was Summer of 49. Um, about the pennant race between the Yankees and the Red Sox and Ted Williams and Joe DiMaggio, and it came down to the last weekend. And one of the points I remember him making when I read that book as a younger man was it was before I ever had the pleasure of meeting David Halberstam. And I was lucky enough to become a friend uh, later on in life, but I, at that point I had never met him. But I remember nodding my head uh, in recognition when he said, look, I'm 10 years old. I'm sitting around the dinner table with my grandfather, my father, my uncles. What are we going to do? Debate the Marshall plan? But <laughs> my opinion about whether Joe DiMaggio is better than Ted Williams or the other way around is just as valid as theirs. And, you know, in 1949, he was on to something. 
That's when so he was true. 10 years old or whatever he was. Oh, that's so true. God, that is one of the truest things about baseball I think I've ever heard in my life. And as much as I, I want to, I feel like I could talk to you about broadcasting probably until the cows come home, but I do want to talk to you a little bit more about baseball cards because of a, a potential, I think it's a fact. I mean, I, I read it in a few places that mm-hmm. you held at one point on you a 1958 Mickey Mantle card. Is this true? Yeah, that point would be forever because I still have. <laughs> really? Um, it was. Yeah, the one baseball card that kind of survived the purge. Uh, this is a story that many a lad, usually would be boys in that era, probably includes more girls today, but uh, many a lad could tell you uh, this story. You kept your uh, baseball cards in a shoebox, and on rainy days you put them in order based on positions they played or what league or how you ranked or evaluated them or whatever it might be. Uh, that's how you wild the time away. Um, and they go back in the shoebox and into the closet. And then you go off to college or whatever, and your mom decides he doesn't need these anymore, and out they go. And one that survived the purge was my 1958 Mickey Mantle. Uh, it was his all-star card. So he had two cards that year, his regular issue card. And then because he was on the all-star team, uh, there was a card of him swinging right-handed, with a red background and a bunch of gold stars surrounding him uh, that was sponsored by Sport Magazine. And somehow that card survived. And when I went off to college, I just took it with me. And it would always have seemed like a sacrilege to throw it away. So I just kept it, you know, in every wallet I had, I kept it. And I never made any mention of it until Tony Kubek, with whom I was doing the baseball game of the week on Saturdays in the 1980s on NBC, Tony, who had played with Mickey on Yankee championship teams in the 50s and 60s, Tony noticed it, and he mentioned it on the broadcast the next day in an affectionate way. And a week later, Sports Illustrated wrote a short story about it. And ever since then, people have been asking me, hey, Bob, do you really have that metal card? And now I can't leave the house without it, because I don't want to disappoint anybody. <laughs> Once or twice, I've forgotten to stick it in the breast pocket of a jacket or the back pocket of, of a pair of jeans. Once or twice. And, and I've been asked out of the thousands of times that I've been asked. And when I have to say to the person, oh, my gosh, I left it at home. I see that look on the person's face where they seem to be thinking, is that true? Does he really still have it? <laughs> so so I, I have to make sure. I, I, I have to make sure. I don't care if I'm, I'm in a tuxedo or, or I'm in a pair of jeans. That mantle card is on me. Oh, uh, man, going to the supermarket or the Emmys. You're, you're, That's correct. <laughs> you're, you've got it on you. That's really and, funny. And if and... you see me broadcasting a baseball game, it is, it is in the breast pocket of the sport coat that I'm wearing. Got it. I mean, has it become like a good luck charm, or do you not really even believe in that? <laughs> well, I've had some good luck and some bad luck, so I can't, I'm not going to blame Mickey for any bad luck that I've had. <laughs> it's a luck charm. Yeah, there it is. Yeah. Um, and, and speaking of Mickey Mail, I, I I do know that that you uh, that you really were a big fan of his, uh, and and mm-hmm. along with so many people, I mean, I think. You have to think that going back into baseball history, few players have affected more people than Mickey Mantle. I feel like That's true. And, and go into why you, why you think that is. Well, it has to do with the era 
But he was a genuinely great player who I think will be underrated by many people as the years go by because the power statistics were distorted to some extent by the steroid era and other factors. But when he retired after the 1968 season, he was third on the all-time home run list behind Babe Ruth and Willie Mays, although Hank Aaron would shortly overtake him. And when you look at the first 10, 11 years of his career, when this whole Mantle-Mays argument, which was a hot debate, it was like DiMaggio and Williams, Mantle-Mays, a lot of people now look at it and say, well, that had to, just to be a New York thing. Mantle, as good as he was, couldn't possibly compare to Mays. Well, if the question is, over the course of their full careers, it's a runaway for Willie Mays or Hank Aaron because they sustained their greatness much longer and their career statistics were more prolific. But when the argument took shape, from the early 50s to the mid-60s, take a look. Take a look at the slugging percentages, the on-base percentages, the basics that uh, modern-day analytics look to, OPS. Look at Mickey Mantle in the heart of his career. The only guy who overlapped his career that would have had better figures than his in those areas would be Ted Williams. I mean, Mantle slugged over 700 without steroids in 1956 and hit 353 with 52 home runs in a ballpark that people don't realize was not really a hitter's park. Unless you pulled the ball right down the lines at the old Yankee Stadium, it was 402 to straightaway left. It was 457 to left center. It was 461 to straightaway center. It was 407 to right center field. It was not really that great a ballpark. Um, and in fact, Mantle's career homers were almost equally divided between home and road. Uh, but Mickey, at his best for that 10 to 12 year period, was probably one of the dozen to 15 greatest non pitchers in baseball history. But then there are other factors. Yes, because he played in New York. Yes, because he played at Yankee Stadium. Yes, because he was next in line in the parade of Yankee greats that begins with Ruth and goes to Gehrig and DiMaggio and then Mantle seamlessly. DiMaggio's last year is Mantle's rookie year, and Mantle plays the same position, takes over in center field. So you've got the drama of him wearing Yankee pinstripes and playing in that baseball cathedral of Yankee Stadium. And then at a time when there wasn't much baseball on TV nationally, the Yankees were almost always on the game of the week, and it seemed like almost every year they were in the World Series. So here you had this handsome, dynamic player with a lyrical-sounding name, Mickey Mantle, a perfect name for a, a baseball player, kid from Oklahoma, comes to the big city. It's almost too good a story to be true, and it turns out that not all of it was exactly true, but we didn't know that at the time. Um, and then he became a sympathetic figure to Alex because he was so often injured that as great as he was, as indisputably Hall of Fame quality as his statistics were, there was always a what might have been element. Yeah, he was great. But if he was in one piece, could he have been as great as Babe Ruth? Could he have broken the all-time record? That's what we as kids argued about. And so, so we simultaneously revered him and sympathized with him. And those are things that unless you were there, unless you were around in that era, you can't really appreciate. 
but people of a certain age, I think, pretty much get it. Yeah, it's and, and I think it, it really goes back to what we were talking about earlier, what you brought up with how at the dinner table, you know, it's what are you going to talk about? Marshall Plant? No, it's it's going to be Mickey Mantle or Joe DiMaggio. And uh, that type of argument is what kind of keeps baseball going. And we still have these yeah. arguments today. Yeah. And look, somebody said, and I should know who said it, it might have been Jimmy Cannon, it might have been Red Smith, but it's some great sports writer of that era. And this is way before sabermetrics existed. He said, baseball is not statistics. Baseball is Joe DiMaggio rounding second base. And some people just have a certain magnetism or presence that matters more than the bare bones of their achievements, as impressive as those achievements might be. You know, Ernest Hemingway referenced DiMaggio in The Old Man on the Sea. That's right. Decades yeah. later, Paul Simon included him in the lyrics of a famous song. And then there was a song specifically about him during his 56-game hitting streak. So there's a mystique around DiMaggio. And then, not incidentally, he was briefly married to Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> yeah, there's hurt. a mystique. Yeah, there's a mystique there that you, know, you can sit in with the numbers all you want. But there's a romance that can't be quantified. And with Mickey Mantle, a lot of really sharp baseball people of that time said that he was the greatest pure combination of power and speed that they had ever seen. A lot of people think of Mantle only as the guy hobbling at the end of his career. But at the beginning of his career, he was the fastest man in baseball. He was the fastest from the plate to first base of anyone clocked during that time. He could he could really fly. He was not as good an outfielder as Willie Mays, but he could cover a tremendous amount of ground. And he was a very fast base runner. And that combination of speed and power, you know, gave him that kind of Roy Hobbs quality. Right. He was the natural. Um, he, he didn't fulfill his potential. And yet fulfilling only maybe 75, 80 percent of his potential, he was still one of the greatest players of all time. Yeah, it really is that mystique. And what you said before, the what, the what if, which is just, I mean, it's cruel to even think about that with a guy who accomplished what he did. I mean, three a three-time MVP, and you're like, ah, oh, what if? What if he was healthy? I mean, that's that's remarkable. Three-time MVP probably probably should have won it five times. Yeah. I think he finished in the top five like ten times. Yeah, he, um, he is a remarkable amount. And like you said, he, he dominated everything in the game, and maybe not as good of a fielder as, as the best in the game, but he certainly – held his own yeah and well, you know when, when you talk about great players willie mays and hank aaron were the two greatest players in the national league for a long long period of time and between them they won three mvps willie won two and i think hank won only one you know so year to year they were the two best players but they didn't win the mvp every year Postseason baseball is here, and what better way to follow along than by downloading the Topps Bunt app? All you have to do is either head to the app or Google Play Store, and you'll be on your way to collecting all different types of cards within the comfort of your own home or office, I won't tell anybody. You can not only collect these cards, but you can play them in daily and weekly fantasy contests within the app. We'll have all sorts of prizes for the contests this postseason, including physical ones like signed cards and memorabilia. And the best part about collecting cards on your phone or tablet? 
your parents or wife or husband can't throw them out. Once again, Tops Bunt is found in the Google Play or App Store and you can download it for free. Having a mobile card collection is only a tap away. What are your thoughts of kind of the state of the game now and the popularity of it? And I know it's a kind of a loaded question, but but how do you think baseball is doing right now? Well, I think in every measurable way, other than national television ratings, which we'll get to in a minute, in every measurable way, baseball is more popular and uh, more prosperous than it has ever been. Attendance, regional and local television, people following it through the Internet or through MLB.com or MLB Network or ESPN or the various baseball packages where you can see every team if you want to, uh, overseas marketing, the expansion of the game internationally. Um, in almost every measurable way, the game is thriving. But national television ratings have fallen off considerably from the time when World Series games would get ratings in the 30s on occasion and always in the mid to high 20s. Now, what could turn that around, at least for a year, would be if the Cubs make it to the World Series this year. I think the max would have been Cubs-Red Sox, no disrespect yeah. to Cleveland Toronto, but if you had Fenway and Wrigley as, as the two venues, that might have pushed it up even a little bit more. But since the Red Sox have won three World Series and their curse has been broken, the Cubs are really the story. If the Cubs get to the World Series, then I think you're going to see a huge bounce back because people who don't know a sacrifice fly from a squeeze bunt are going to be interested. Uh, but over the last generation or so, national TV has been the one area where it's fallen off. Apart from that, uh, I think baseball's biggest problem is pace of game. I, agree. Um, I don't mind. And, and it isn't even length of game. It's pace of game. If a game is 10 to 8 and a bunch of stuff is going on in the last three and a half hours, okay, fine. But when you had a four to two game, and that lasts four hours, and there's 13 pitching changes, I don't care how much you love the game, you get a little bit fidgety. We put a clock on the Dodger reliever Baez on Monday uh, <laughs> because we had a note that he averages the longest uh, period of time between pitches of any pitcher in the majors, about 30 seconds between pitches. So we put a clock on him. And when it got to 21 seconds, I said, well, if this is the NBA, he'd have three seconds to shoot. <laughs> but he didn't deliver to the plate until 32 seconds. And there was nobody on base. <sighs> it wasn't even a high-stress situation. You know, this, this is the very definition of watching paint dry. So <laughs> you know, baseball has to be concerned about that. Yeah, you're preaching to the choir, too, because you're, you're talking to someone who grew up with Steve Traxel. Thank you very much. And whew, I mean, every I mean, I can't imagine how much the Wilpons loved having him on the mound. The amount of concessions that were sold and, and his starts, they, whew, I, I you have to think they were they skyrocketed compared to the other days. Um, partly redeemed by his quirkiness. Didn't he brush his teeth between innings in the dugout? I think that sounds vaguely Wasn't familiar. that him? Yeah, that well, sounds that, vaguely familiar. Was that Steve familiar. Traxel, or am I putting that on Traxel and it was somebody else? I don't know. I'm looking this up as I'm as I'm saying it. Because I know that another another interesting um, another interesting guy on those Mets teams was um, uh, was Turk Wendell, who was very uh, You eccentric. know, it might have been Wendell. 
It might have yeah. been Wendell. And if, and if it was, I apologize to both Traxel and Wendell. <laughs> because a guy ought to own his own distinctive traits. Exactly. And shouldn't have them pawned off on somebody else. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, it was Dirk Wendell. Look at that. There you that? go. <laughs> well, I, I, thanks, thanks for the correction. I'll, yeah. I'll never make – I made that mistake briefly on this podcast, but we <laughs> caught it and corrected it. And I'll never make that mistake on the air. There you go. So you know, you I go. feel. And by I the feel... way, as a Met fan, if you want to talk about two poignant figures mm. in the mid '80s, if you said to every general manager in baseball, "You're starting a team. You can have one pitcher and you can have one position player," I think it would have been unanimous, not just a consensus, unanimous. I'll take Strawberry as my position player, and I'll take Gooden as my pitcher. It was a foregone conclusion yeah. that they were each bound for the Hall of Fame. And they each had that X factor, that quality we were talking about earlier. You couldn't take your eyes off them. They were so wonderful and beautiful to watch. And while each accomplished a lot at their respective peaks, they didn't sustain it because of personal problems. And they should have waltzed into the Hall of Fame, and obviously they, they both fell short. You've had such a, an illustrious career, and, and one that has lasted for quite a long time, and I'm sure it will last much longer. I'm interested to know what is your favorite, is baseball your favorite sport to cover? And if it is, which By a I, mile. I feel like it By is. A I mile. Have a not even close. What is B or C if it's not even close? What, what's your next favorite uh, thing to cover? The NBA, when we had it in the 1990s mm. and the early part of the 21st century. The NBA on NBC was a lucky alignment of the stars, um, literally and figuratively. Uh, the Michael Jordan era, all six of his championships, but think of what it overlapped. Isaiah Thomas and the Pistons, Charles Barkley's career, the Admiral David Robinson, Malone and Stockton. I'm leaving a bunch of people out. Uh, the league was just at a peak at that time. Now, what we just saw with LeBron and the Cavs against Curry and the Warriors, a 73-win team, and the Cavs managed to beat them, and uh, incredible seventh game. I mean, that's that's approaching that peak. But that was a sustained period of time, an entire decade or more. And it's actually coming off the 80s, uh, which NBC did not cover, but CBS had the NBA then and did a very good job with it. And that's Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. Oh, yeah. So that's that's a couple of decades where the NBA was very, very compelling. Uh, and I was really, really happy to be part of the broadcast of those. So that would be my second choice. That's great. And and finally, I'll, I'll finish with this because yeah, as someone who, um, who I, I know many people who are looking to get into the broadcasting business and to hear you kind of give any sort of tip at all, I'm sure would be a real thrill. So for those who are listening who are looking to kind of break into the business, one that you have so uh, eloquently stayed in for so long, uh, what are what, maybe one or two of your most uh, favorite lessons that you've learned in getting to where you are today? Well, I think you can be inspired by other broadcasters whom you admire, those who have preceded you, but it's not a good idea, except maybe when you just start out, it's not a good idea to copy anyone. You try to copy Marv Albert or copy um, Vin Scully or someone who's that distinctive, and all you'll sound like is a pale imitation, no matter how much you admire them. You might pick up something about uh, how meticulous their preparation is. You might pick up something about pacing, about how to fit a story in, 
that sort of thing. But you still have to make it work for you. But all sportscasters who are worth anything at all are meticulous about preparation. So that's always important. I would say it's important to get a well-rounded education and to be a well-read, well-informed person. Because while primarily you're covering sports, if you have a frame of reference that takes in some of pop culture and a little bit of history, it'll help you on the air now and then. It'll help to enliven the broadcast in some way or inform the broadcast in some way. And then even as you try to get a good education, you have to realize that broadcasting is a knack. You can know a lot about sports and be a smart person and not necessarily have that knack. So the only way to find out is hands-on. You can't learn it in a classroom. You can take classes in communication, but you can't learn how to be a broadcaster except by doing it on the campus radio station, the campus TV station, uh, a small station in the 112th market somewhere in Timbuktu. That's the way you kind of learn whether you have any broadcasting chops at all. And if you do, you refine your talent and make your way up the ladder. And then I would say, if you break into the business, don't be disappointed when you don't get the first job you apply for. And don't take it personally, because dozens and dozens of people have applied for that job. So be prepared, unless you're very, very lucky or extraordinarily talented, be prepared to throw a hundred resumes and audition tapes against the wall, so to speak, and just hope that two or three of them stick and come through, because you can't take rejection personally. And then once you get onto a bigger stage and more people see what you can do, then you get a chance to prove yourself. Thanks for listening to Tops Talk, and we hope you hear us again soon. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Audioboom, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, and you can find us on Twitter at Tops Talk. If you have any questions or comments or would like to tell us your collecting story on a future episode, email us at topstalk at tops.com. Special thanks goes to Clay Laraski, Leanne Minutoli, Susan LeJudai, Kevin Moody, Jamie Palatini, Jeremy Schilling, Pam Davis, and Bob Costas. This has been Episode 36 of Topstalk. Talk.